0: So you can feel it instead of thinking about it to see if it's a good match for you. That is jointheantidote.com. Scroll all the way down and you will see a place to pop your email address in and grab the recording. Hello and welcome to this episode of That's What She Said. Today we have magical miracle return guest Beth Pickens. And she has described herself as a consultant for artists and art organizations Um, Her time spent working with so many artists is distilled into the most universal lessons possible in her new book, Make Your Art No Matter What, which has been described as the artist's way for the 21st century. Holy shit, that's a big deal. Okay, so her previous book, Your Art Will Save Your Life, was featured in That's What She Said, podcast episode 178, back in 2018. So please check it out if you would like to hear more from her. I am so fucking stoked to reintroduce you to Beth Pickens. Hi, hello, welcome. Hello, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me back. Of course, of course. Congratulations on the new book. It's no small thing to launch it during a worldwide pandemic and like hope for the best.
1: Yeah, totally. People have had books come out the past 13 months. We're all part of a particular club.
0: Yeah, the like, well,
1: I guess it's happening. (laughs) Put your thing out into a void, see what
0: happens. (laughs) Oh, the void. Yeah. Uh, So, is it okay to just like dive right in and ask you questions? Absolutely, let's do it. I have so many questions. Um the first one is I would just love to to get us all on the same page to share your definition of the word artist um because I think it applies to almost all of my listeners. Um, mm. this, is, this is from page 10. Um quote artists are people who make art. My deeper understanding is that artists are people who are profoundly compelled to make their creative work. And when they are distanced from their practice, their life quality suffers. Making their work, why am I crying? (laughs) Making their work is a way to take care of themselves, communicate, process information, engage a spiritual interior, or strengthen their relationship to themselves and others. Um, What's fascinating, is that I do not describe myself as an artist, but that makes me cry. <laughs> mm. Yeah,
1: if, if that strikes something in you, you might be an artist. If that resonates as true for you, then that might be true for you. That, that, might, be, that might be a truth. And, and I, I came to this understanding of, of my understanding of artists partially because I am not one. I do not have that deep compulse, that that deep compulsion, that profound feeling that I need to make work in order to process things. And I really see how true that is for all of the artists in my life, my friends, my spouse, my clients, That when they stop making their creative projects, whatever they are, they become unmoored and ungrounded and depressed and anxious. And they have a hard time feeling connected to themselves and other people. And as soon as they spend time back in a creative practice, they feel better. And so I really understood that for this kind of person, for an artist, they need this thing. Everybody in the world benefits from it. I benefit from making things, but
0: an artist needs it. Yes. And you were so kind to give me space to stop crying. That's like the most horrifically vulnerable way to open I've ever experienced. And I'm going to keep it in there. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. I
1: love it. I mean, what... tears are so useful right now because i think so many so many of us just feel so emotionally stuck there's just so much grief like stuck inside of us and so when other people are emoting it helps everybody else like have a little bit of movement on the inside so it's a generous thing to
0: cry please cry (laughs) thank you um so i always defined artists as like well you just like it doesn't matter if you make art or not that's not what makes you an artist what makes you an artist is like that's your full-time job and and then there are very specific requirements which I'm sure everyone has like and your work has to be at MoMA or and something else. Um, Do you find that most artists limit their definition of the word artist to exclude themselves?
1: (laughs) Yeah I think that happens all the time because people get caught up in we get caught up in the cultural messages of what makes somebody a real something or other and for artists they can absorb these messages that a real artist enter definition here. Like you Mm -hmm. said, has their work in major institutions, Mm -hmm. makes all of their money from their work, spends all their time, doesn't have another job. And the reality is most artists, and when I say artists, this is like a really useful big umbrella term that includes people who make anything in any discernible or not discernible discipline, including writers, including people who work in all kinds of ways, materials for artists. um, Most of them don't make all or even some of their money from their art. They have all kinds of other jobs to make money. They have the work they do to support themselves financially. And then they have the work they do that is their life's work, which is their their art. And it's really great and wonderful as we work toward artists having more of their life spent in their creative practice and making more of their money. But that doesn't happen for most people. And it's not even necessarily a goal for everyone
0: amazing i love it um so if it's all right with you now that we have the definition of art uh, or and artists um there are just three chapters that i thought i looked at all of them and like the one about death i was like i am tempted but no i wouldn't if it's okay with you i just wanted to focus on three chapters those are time asking and fear absolutely you know, like super easy, no stress topics that don't carry any emotional baggage. I thought it would would just be so simple. (laughs) Totally. Um, so the first one with time, um, it blew me away because it isn't my experience of time and so I wanted to dive into it further for my people who like they're like yes say more holy shit because I can't help you here people uh, so on page 20 you say ex- quote expanses of unstructured time are the enemy of most artists end quote mm-hmm. can you say a bit more about unstructured time and what you see happening when artists get expanses of free time and then then what
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that can be, that can be an assumption that a lot of people carry that if I just had blank number of months, if I just had three months or six months or one year without all of my other obligations to just focus on my work, I could really get into it. And what happens for most, not all, but truly the vast majority of my clients and other artists I know in my life, when they get an expansive time, maybe they buy themselves out a few weeks from their day job, or they're teachers and they have the summer off, or they're going to a residency from anywhere from one week to three. Three months. Mm -hmm. What happens when they get into this unstructured time? For one thing, that transition is difficult. It's difficult to transition for many of us from hyperstructure to structurelessness. And people can have a real hard time creating a shape to the time for themselves. And that also, that pause when we get out of a routine. It allows us to sort of feel whatever was simmering that we were keeping at bay through our busyness anxiety and depression and worry Mm. just sort of like the 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 soup of our interior starts bubbling up because wherever we go there we are oh Mm -hmm. there's my anxiety it came with me to mcdowell or there's my depression it creeped up whenever i wasn't busy anymore so when when artists find themselves with a big amount of unstructured time number one, that transition can be challenging and it can heighten depression and anxiety. And suddenly they may feel like I don't deserve the time or I've already wasted it or it's over before it even began. That, that, those are messages I
0: hear from people when they get to retreats quite often. So like time scarcity, but you have three whole months, but like, it's not enough somehow. It's already over. Yes, <laughs> oh. it's already over
1: before it even started. I already squandered it. It's not enough. Yes, oh. just a, a an, sort of, a, we get
0: an upside down relationship to time. Yeah, and how do you advise clients to begin creating a structure or a set of structures that suit their needs when they're approaching any sort of unstructured time?
1: I ask all of my clients whether it's the weekend or a break or a retreat that the first thing they do is actually just take a day or days off, actually not actually have a boundary around a day or two that is not meant for work including their art practice to truly pause on the world of work of productive work so they can rest that part of themselves they can do anything else anything else but we have to actually have a transition there has to be a beat going from what we were Mm -hmm. doing into the next thing and sometimes just a day can do that for people just resting the part of themselves that is a striver worker for a day can then ground them enough to begin the following day But I think having a transitional method like a day off and then creating a shape, not necessarily a schedule. Some people really need a schedule. Other people feel constrained by a schedule, but a Mm -hmm. shape, a shape to the time. So for example, these are the goals that a person is going to tend to over the course of a week. They're going to do something for their body. They're going to do something that um, engages their spiritual and emotional interior. They're going to do specific professional tasks like email and outreach and applications. But, but so we'll get them sort of a list of different parts of their life and practice that they'll touch over the course of a week rather than having kind of a hyper-structured day. And then we play around with schedules because sometimes it takes a little while to experiment to find out what works for different artists and writers. People have um, different ways of relating to time and work and what worked two years ago might not work now. So sometimes it takes just a little bit of holding it lightly and experimenting.
0: Oh, And I love the distinction between shape and schedule. Um, that seems really important because when people come to me and they need help structuring time, I always begin with schedule. And so shape is like, oh, that's a that's a more subtle creature. <laughs>
1: right. And I'm
0: a schedule queen. Like
1: I want a schedule. And it, it's if it's in my calendar, it exists. If it doesn't, it doesn't exist in my world. Even mm-hmm. fun. Like I have to put in my calendar, have like, don't like do something fun then, you know, it's right. all in the calendar. But, <laughs> for, but for some people, they feel quite constrained by that. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll use the word shape. Like what, what can be a shape to your week rather than feeling like you have to adhere to something that feels unhappy for who you are?
0: Oh, that's so lovely, lovely. And you sort of talked about this already, but I just want to be like super awesomely like by the book, page 26, here it goes. In Time Tactics, time tactics, you dive into Abraham Joshua Heschel's concept that Judaism is actually a religion of time. Um, you say, quote, Shabbat, the 24-hour period from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown creates an architecture of time. Rather than making things or places sacred, the tradition asks us to make time sacred, end quote.
1: I love Judaism. This is my favorite thing about Judaism. I have many favorites, but
0: I love this
1: concept of an architecture of time, rather than places or things being sacred or holy, that it is time that is
0: it's so good. It's just so good. I wanted to give a shout out to Heschel <laughs> and a shout out to you for including it. Um, so what do you typically find like changing or shifting once a client has started to implement this practice, whether it's Shabbat specifically or just having regular days off? Mm-hmm. They, I mean,
1: everybody fights me on it. Yes. Everybody fights me on it.
0: And they're like, I don't (laughs) want
1: to do this. And after they do it once, they're like, it was uncomfortable. It was Mm -hmm. hard. I didn't like it. And I'm like, that's totally okay. You don't have to like it. Keep doing it. Just do it for like a month and then let's talk about it and you can hate it and you can curse me the whole time. And then once a person starts adhering to a routine of protecting one day a week from the world of paid work and their practice, they start to inevitably feel like they have more time they have more energy. Mm-hmm. They remember other parts of their life that are important and a priority. They, their, their perception and perspective shifts. And all we need is like a 2% pers- perspective shift for everything to feel different for a person. And of course people get off track and then, and after a while they'll be like, oh my God, I haven't, I haven't taken a day off for a while. And then we just come back. We just come back to it. We can always come back to it. But over and over again, I know people don't want to do it and they'll fight me on it and they'll hate it. And then they will grow to really need and respect they'll respect their need for the downtime to see how much it does for them in all parts of their life, including their work life. It's important for their work life, whether it's paid day job or their practice or both having a day off from that, where they are forbidden from touching it makes (laughs) the days that they're working better. It makes the work better.
0: It really does. It's like, we're not meant to work 24 seven. That's strange. Well, and, and what happens is we don't work better too. So
1: I've definitely had times in my life when I was like transitioning from one job to another job. And, and I've, I worked like seven days a week for three months, one time in my, in my early thirties, I'll never forget it. And I lost my mind. I I couldn't remember. I, I wasn't working well. It's like some of those days, maybe <laughs> I was only working an hour or two at a time, but it felt like the whole day was work. So I, I, I. When when artists are like, but I, can I just do like half an hour on Sunday? And I say, no, you cannot. <laughs> you, you have to block <laughs> off that day because what happens is, even if you put a little bit of the job into the day, that day has been touched by work. It's like oil went into the water, mm-hmm. or rather. I know what it is. Easter egg dye went into the oil and vinegar, and the whole thing is cloudy now. You, we have to actually have that boundary. That boundary makes the days clearer for yourself, and that will change
0: your interior. I love it. I love it. You say that it's that time is for engaging all the other selves they contain. Um, On page 27, you say, quote, they contend to their bodies, relationships, homes, rest, leisure, and all else that becomes neglected through a week of living in late capitalism. By designating time each week for soul, work, and rest, we can connect to a spiritual interior that brings more meaning and joy to the rest of the week and the rest of our work, end quote. Oh, it sounds so good when you read it. Can you read the whole book to me? I'll be like, that sounds so smart. <laughs> it's so good. That's why I got so excited that I just like exploded into tears when I got to talking to you because I was like, this is genius. Please everyone read this. <laughs>
1: <laughs> sounds so uh, good out of your mouth.
0: You're articulating a lot of things that are like, oh, right. Cause we're like, we tend to just let work take over. And then we're like, oh, but there are all these other things. And people are like, what will I do? Right. Um, well, so- we forget e- even if we love jobs.
1: Like I love my job. I work for myself. It- I don't have some asshole boss. I work at home even before COVID. I I love what I do so much. And it's a job. The reason I do it primarily is for a paycheck. And so if I don't take time away from it, I will lose perspective and start to believe I live, I'm on the planet to work and earn money. And that is actually not my life's purpose. It enables me to have my life's purpose, (laughs) all of the other things I'm supposed to do. So earning money gives me a life. I don't live to get money, you know, and and if and if I can put if I can put earning money and productive labor into its proper place, I can have it can stay right sized and not overtake
0: my life. That's such a beautiful way of looking at it. And I, too, when I ask my business coaching clients, like, when was the last time you had a day off or like two days off in a row? Mm-hmm. And then they, they're like, what they, they hate me. And they're like, i will never yes. get done again. This is terrible.
1: <laughs> I know they get so mad. They get so mad and it's fine. Cause I, I know what will happen when they do it. Once mm-hmm. they're done being mad and they just try it anyway, it, it works every time. Yeah. It's been and so- I have to do it. I have to do it myself too. I mean, mm-hmm. this is, I I'm not exempt from these things. And sometimes I resent like, Oh, I need to take time off, but I feel so busy. And there's so many things I want to do. How will mm-hmm. I get them all done? And the thing is, when I take the rest, not to belabor the point, but when I take the rest, then I can actually do all the other things fresher and more
0: efficiently and with a better attitude, dare I say. Yeah, it gets really beautiful in there if you feel like you have enough time to do your work versus like, I have no time to do my work ever, no matter what. Yeah, it's a very different perspective shift. Um, And if you had to remind the artists listening, P.S., you're probably an artist, you heard the definition. Um, If you had to remind them of just one key point to remember about time what is the thing that's like please if you get this about time I have done my job Hmm. your time on
1: earth is finite and you have choices over how you spend it you have some choices and I want you to remember that you have choices
0: yeah do you run into a lot of time and powerlessness do they tend to like Running. Oh, sure. We just feel, we feel because our culture
1: demands of us. We feel as though we have no time and we have to be ubiquitously available to other people all the time, just mm-hmm. constantly checking social media and checking email and being available and answering people all the time. It's like, it's very difficult to retreat into oneself in a way that doesn't feel defensive. And um, yeah, I, I think we forget we have choices. It's sort of like when a person's in a job, a day job that they really dislike, and I've been there too. Mm-hmm. that The perspective can be be such that I have no choice; it's this or nothing. Like, what am I going to do? Not work. And we forget that there's like a million jobs and many ways to make money. Mm-hmm. And as soon as a person starts applying for more jobs, choicefulness is restored. They remember I have choices. <laughs> So as soon as we sort of disrupt whatever thing we're doing that we're telling ourselves, it's this or nothing, we restore choicefulness to us. So when we break the habit of working seven days a week and, and, and doing the thing that our brain is telling, Nope, this is the only way there's nothing else. There are no choices. As soon as we just break that
0: a little bit, choicefulness can return. Yeah. Is choicefulness a Beth Pickens word or a, a word in the larger vocabulary because I love it. I'm sure.
1: I mean, there's nothing new under the sun, so I'm sure I didn't invent it. Google it. It's probably in the urban dictionary or something. I don't even know. But I I, I like to think about choicefulness, just the restoration of our interior knowledge that, oh, yes, I have choices. I have other options. It doesn't have to be this thing that's making me miserable.
0: Yeah. No, I love that because it can be very 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 like it's a or it's b and your brain is very much lying to you all the time with regards to it's a or it's b
1: that's it oh yeah we get so rigid in our thinking me too everything becomes a binary black or white it's this or it's that there are no other choices
0: (laughs) you are done with choices now (laughs) awesome so um i feel like going from choicefulness to fear feels like mm, That's where we're going to go next, guys. Um, You address it so succinctly and with so little shame that I could spend the whole hour on like just this chapter. Um, But there's this part where you normalize fear. um, And I feel like one of your gifts in the book, if I may compliment you, is that you just completely normalize everything that's going on inside of my head that I'm like, I'm fucking crazy. There is something (laughs) wrong with me.
1: And then I'm so glad.
0: Perhaps I am not crazy. Perhaps I am just
1: an artist. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Well, this is one of, I am so grateful for my counseling training. I got really good training when I was in graduate school. And one of the things it did for me, and I think for all of my peers who are also going through the same program, is that we understood that whatever was going on inside of any of us or any of our clients that made them feel ashamed is completely universal and normal. And as soon as we just shine a light on, oh yeah, you're not alone in that. You're absolutely not alone in that. It just makes it a little bit smaller and more manageable.
0: It does, it does. And I love that you take us right into this loop on page, I don't know what page it is. 91, quote, (laughs) that's my very loud book, 91, quote, to be radically transparent. I am afraid every single time I sit down to write this book. The fears are varied, but here's the constellation. What if I can't think of anything good to write? What if I can't think of anything to write at all? What if I write the wrong thing? What if my readers hate what I write? What if they take to the internet to lacerate my good name? What if my white privilege and racial bias keep me from writing anything meaningful for artists of color? What if I neglect artists who are outside my experience, such as parents, people younger or older than me, or undocumented artists? What if this is the last book I ever publish? What if it's too self-helpy? What if it's not self-helpy enough? What if I'm not smart enough? What if I can't do it perfectly on the first try? And what if that means I shouldn't do it at all? What if my advice isn't helpful? What if I am not good enough? Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. You're, you're in there. You get it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> totally. I mean, every time I worked on the book, I had to first just acknowledge that, oh yeah, I feel, I feel so afraid to do this. I'm like, I can't do it. Just like all of my clients do with their projects all the time.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's really beautiful though, to open it up in a way that's like, this is exactly correct. This is not like you're doing it wrong or bad, or there's going to be some magical person who just writes books without ever thinking these thoughts. This is just like par. Right. Right. And as soon as we can
1: understand that, you know, for any listener, when you think about your fave, like the writer who you just love or the artist who is like, has given you so much meaning in your life, they were totally afraid and insecure and had imposterism because they're just human. These are just human experiences and they're just bound to happen, but they don't, they're not, and they, they don't inevitably condemn you to anything and they're not evidence. I think sometimes we can think fear is evidence. So I have these fearful thoughts, therefore that is evidence that I'm bad, or I can't do this, or I am not smart enough. But all fear is evidence of, is that you're just human and you have a brain and our brains think fears all day, (laughs) just like they they think fears (laughs) and judgments. Our Uh brains just prattle off with fear and judgment, and and we're not responsible for those thoughts. They're they're just like cultural detritus, as I think is what I even say in the book. It's just garbage, like passing through our brains, and we have to discern what thoughts do we want to use and interrogate and do something with, and which ones do we just let pass us by, and a lot of fears, not all, because a lot of fear can be useful, but many fearful thoughts are just meant to pass by.
0: Yeah. Like, what if this is too self-helpy? What if it's not self-helpy enough? (laughs) (laughs) If you're afraid of both things, like maybe totally, well, of course it's like, because
1: what is the biggest fear for me and all of my clients when they're putting something out into the world? It's what will people think of me?
0: Hmm. Will I,
1: will I be rejected? It's just that base human fear of will I be unloved and rejected as the result of sharing something with the world? And sometimes you will, but it's usually from strangers who maybe didn't read the thing or experience your work. It, it, it's like it, it's just an opportunity to start to go into the world of detachment.
0: Hmm. Got it. Um, so on page 96 there's this magnificent list of like it's a crowdsourced artist list of things that they fear and I was just like mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. <laughs> um so there's this list again like go buy the book i'm not going to read you the whole book people uh, make your art no matter what get it um i'm afraid of and there's a bunch of them like getting older and facing ageism in my discipline i was like i didn't even know i was afraid of that but now that you put it down <laughs> yes i am <laughs> <laughs> not living, now not, i'm afraid of that <laughs> right like not living up to my potential being mediocre or making second-rate work being visible being invisible one and in the same there somewhere like taking up space, receiving criticism, harming someone, dying alone and penniless. That's just like a standard one. Um, Mm -hmm. I I found it fascinating that these are just so, 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 so common, but they torture us for all of our lives if we don't just admit like, yep, 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 Mm -hmm. yep. Um, So that leads us to the place where we talk about the three A's and what do we do with all of these fears that we definitely have? Yeah, I think I, so I borrow the three A's awareness,
1: acceptance, action from 12 step programs, which is it's, these three A's are a useful tool for a lot of different experiences. And I like to apply them to fear because I think fear, a lot of our fear, we can sort of pluck out of our brains and point to it, but some of it's very subterranean and it feels like it is the utterances of the soul. It feels like it is the DNA of us, that they are immovable immovable Mm truths. And once we speak them out loud, which is very difficult to unearth them, to articulate them, but once we do, we can understand, oh, that might be a fearful thought rather than a baseline truth of the universe. So becoming aware is the first thing of just what am I afraid of? What are the fears I can easily name? And what are the ones that take some work to get to or some conversation with another person, a therapist, a friend. And so awareness, just this is my fear. Mm -hmm. Just here they are. And the next is acceptance. I think this, this is the one we often want to skip over. And in 12 step models, this is often the one everyone wants to skip over. We want to go from awareness to action, but then we have to pause and accept, accept that with radical acceptance, these are my fears. They're, they're not good or bad. They're just my fears and everybody has theirs and there they are. I'm okay. Okay. Here they are. I accept that these are my fears. And that takes, that takes, practice and time to, to actually accept it, not just lip service, but I accept that I have fear. I have all these different kinds of fear. I just accept it. I'm not going to judge myself about it. And then we move into action. What do we do about it? Uh, sometimes with fears, the action to take is a contrary action, which simply means <clears throat> just doing the opposite, whatever the fear is telling you. If the fear is saying, "Don't finish this book, you're a terrible writer. The contrary action is to keep writing. Mm -hmm. Often the country action is keep doing the thing that the fear is telling you to stop doing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the fear will tell you an action and you want to do the opposite or not take that action. So it's action is about um, understanding where is that fear taking you and then choosing a different path. So awareness, acceptance, action in that order.
0: I love it. And how do we accept without judging? And it's a very small question. No big deal. (laughs) What does acceptance, um, it might be helpful. Um, What is accepting your fears feel like? Is it feeling the fear? Is it acknowledging the fear? Is it just refusing to judge yourself for the fear?
1: I think it's, I I think if you wanted to put sort of a visual to it, it's, it's like smiling at each one of them. Hmm. Like there you are. The fear that I'm not good enough. I see you. I'm smiling at you. The fear that my my I'm not smart enough. The fear that people will hate the book. Just looking at each of them. Maybe it's writing it down. Maybe it's saying out loud. Maybe there's a ritual attached to it. But literally or figuratively smiling at each one. And that helps you non-judgmentally accept that it. it just exists. And it doesn't mean anything about your worth or value as a person. It simply means you're
0: human. Awesome. I love it. Are there any patterns that you've noticed about fear as it relates to pandemic and artists? And would it be like the new stuff? Is it the same old shit, but in a different package? Like how is fear um, in your, especially in your practice, um, how is fear in playing into or playing alongside of pandemic? Mm.
1: I think for the last 13 plus months now, people's fears that previously existed sometimes were very much exacerbated mm-hmm. sometimes they were um, they were replaced by pandemic specific fears about financial insecurity health and safety um, other people judgment of their of other people fear of judgment from other people
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, the future would, Everything that was suspended or lost for the past 13 months, would it come back? So fear has, I would say, gone up for everyone in my Mm. life, including my clients and hit a kind of numbing wall Mm. where when we have such a flood of one kind of emotion, we come to a point where we actually can't feel it anymore. And I was earlier in the conversation talking about how so many people, I think, feel quite numb. Some people feel very intense emotion, other people feel quite numb. Mm-hmm. And I think the numbness is um, just in, it, it's just a natural outcome of being so flooded with extreme circumstances and emotions. You can only take so much. And then the next day you still have to get up and brush your teeth and, and make breakfast again. So what happens, like maybe we emotionally shut down a little or sort of compartmentalize like, okay, I will feel those feelings again after this experience, whenever that's over. Yeah, so I, it was like spike in fear and then hitting a ceiling of how much a human could feel. Yes. <laughs> and, then a, and then a numbness. But with numbness, I think for a lot of artists comes a real feeling of alienation and disconnection from their practice. Not being able to connect to themselves can be really scary and upsetting.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: I know for performing artists, my performing artist clients, I've had a, a specific kind of empathy for because they couldn't actually do the thing that feeds them in the way that feeds them. For so many performing artists, it's about bodies and space together. It's about the energy of performers and and an audience together in a space. And losing that for so long, I think create a real... Not just depression in the way we understand depression, depression, um, but like a depressive cloak over them because they can't get the thing that feeds them and puts more energy back in. I I liken it to teaching. So I teach at at art school in Southern California called CalArts. And my experience of teaching over Zoom, like in some ways, it's great. There's lots of good things about it, but my experience of it is it's like dumping energy into a void and getting nothing back. Whereas yes. teaching in person is such an exchange of energy, even if only a few people are engaging, mm-hmm. it feeds mm-hmm. me back, but mm-hmm. it's just one directional. So that's a long tangent away from fear, but I really want to, I really want to really address and empathize with people who are feeling just kind of flattened.
0: Yeah. Well, if to be divorced from your practice, not by your choice, right? Like you're a dancer and there's no dancing happening. It's not that you failed at some level or that you're bad or you're wrong. It's just like, that's not happening. And when people right. are like, just dance dance. from you, it's not the same.
1: <laughs> no, there's nothing that replaces bodies and space together. The electricity that happens When you're watching live music or performance or dance or stand-up, just a a group of people in a space together is electric. And I can I get goosebumps saying it because I remember what that used to feel
0: like. Right? I've gone to concerts. We remember. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So is there anything? that helps um, if you've had to be divorced from your practice, if this is the space where like, if you have magical Beth Pickens juice, that's like, this is how we do it. This is how we get back on the wagon. This is how we stop your depressive cloak from taking over your life. Is there anything, or is it just like time? I think I've
1: encouraged all of my clients to however they could at different points in the past 13 months to be with somebody in person. Mm. And if it was like somebody in New York during extreme lockdown, it might just be a short walk or conversation outside, but to actually get to be with other people in whatever way was available to have human contact with someone other than your cat or the people who are in your home that you shared space Mm -hmm. with. That just that little bit of contact could get, it it could, it could be just like a sustaining vitamin that could keep you going until your choices are restored for public gathering. Um, and to find any other outlets for what's inside of you that is available. Hmm. And for some performers, they would make things and put them on the internet. And some of them like that. Other people tried it and hated it and didn't do that again. So it might be moving to writing or drawing or another form. But like whatever was it available and you had a willingness to do, that is what I've pushed people toward that stopping doing anything was not an option because when an artist stops making work, that was just going to exacerbate their experience of COVID if they stopped making any kind of work. But what we did was just take the pressure off that work to have to do something. Like the work doesn't have to go earn you money. It doesn't have to like launch into the world. It might be something that's even more personally important. Like it might just feed you
0: until this is over. Uh, Which is somehow never enough. That's always the like, well, that's not enough. I mean, I can't do that just because it feeds me. That's a Right. Because yeah,
1: that's what capitalism teaches us, right? Like if this doesn't earn me a wage, that hour is wasted and I have wasted my hour. Right. (laughs) And, and, but again, going back to when, when, if I just take one day off, then I remember that every hour of the day doesn't have to be monetized. That's not what makes the hour a good hour, but I forget it. If I don't Mm -hmm. do that. (laughs)
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Amazing. 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 So that is, that feels like a good place to stop with fear. And then we're gonna move on to what might be the hardest, there's a reason I put fear in the middle, um, which is asking. Um, Yes. So tell me, (laughs) magical Beth Pickens, why is every artist so afraid of asking for
1: help? you know, this is the first chapter I wrote. This was the chapter that was actually in my book proposal that my mm-hmm. agent and I used to, to pitch to publishers mm-hmm. because it was the easiest thing. It was like the thing that I just dropped out of the sky. What do all my clients struggle with? Asking for anything.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: All, and they all do. Not all in the same ways, but they all struggle with asking. For a number of reasons. Some of them are sociopolitical we are socialized within particular identities to not, to um, believe that we're not allowed to ask for anything. That asking for help will burden someone else or it will indicate a weakness. And that for, for me to be successful, I have to have done everything by myself or um, I'm gonna bother someone. So much of it for anyone who it has been socialized female for all or part of their lives, we have been messaged that we are bothering people when we ask for anything excuse me i'm could you give me cpr i'm sorry to bother you but i am dying you know what I mean? like we have internalized so many messages about we are supposed to help everyone and ask for nothing that mm-hmm. is part of um, misogyny and a lot, not all of my clients are women and some of them were socialized as female and are no longer identifying as female and the world doesn't experience them as female, but that is still in them. And so, and I would say even for my cisgender male clients, the socialization just hit them differently, but also in a negative way. Sometimes for the cisgender men, they feel as though it's it's a weakness or they're, um, that, that somehow they're not good enough if they have to ask for help. So Mm -hmm. I like to demystify for everyone that everybody, every, Hey, everyone come over here. You all need help. I need help. All people need help. Nobody does anything (laughs) alone. There is no genius who did anything alone. Nobody ever. We need help. We are relational creatures. We need things from each other. You do not have to be solely responsible for yourself, like, um, Grizzly Adams or something we need help. And, And in fact, when you start to practice asking for help and, 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 working through the discomfort of that, you find that like, sometimes you, you like get what you need and you feel yeah. closer to the people who are helping you. And then you give back. It's like, if, if resources are a big ball of energy, I want all of my clients to be giving to that energy ball and taking from it. It has to go both directions. We can't just take, and we can't just give, it has to be reciprocal
0: mmm mm-hmm.
1: and that's what builds a strong community when people are giving and receiving from one another and not just one direction. but mm-hmm. it is extremely hard to ask for things and that is a daily practice I give my clients homework, very specific homework around asking
0: for things all the time. Awesome because on page 53 there's this brilliant list of why you're not asking and I was like this is basically a complete list. <laughs> it's like, uh, some examples, um, I'll just be bothering or annoying someone. What if I get what I need and then I don't finish my project or it's not good enough? Once I get one no, then I figure the rest will be no's too, so why bother asking anyone else? I don't know where to start. I don't want people to think I'm using them. People will think that I don't know what I'm doing. I'm nobody. Why would they help me? I'm afraid of being told no. Everyone else is succeeding without help. Um, there are a lot of them here. And I've been like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> I've been through those places, the, the like the tight places where you're like, I desperately need help. And also I'm going to ask no one. I'll just hope that someone notices that I need it. Right, yes, yes.
1: <laughs> if somebody notices and comes, and helps me than it was meant to be. <laughs>
0: yes. Like someone should just appear on my door like, hello, I am the help, like the help fairy. And I'm like, yes, right.
1: I've been waiting yes. for you. <laughs> but no one can read our minds. No one can read our minds. We have to actually say what we want and need. And that means we actually have to have to know that. Like, okay, so what do I want? What do I
0: need? Yeah. And I thought it was so helpful when you went into um, describing a good ask as uh, clean, achievable, quantifiable, and well-matched to the person you're asking. That was like, Mm -hmm. oh, that's so helpful. Um, Mm -hmm. Can you say more about those qualities of the ask, or maybe an example of an ask that's likely to be rejected, or one that's a little more refined, Mm -hmm. or whatever you'd like to say about that? Sure, sure.
1: Well, I think the easiest thing to pick up is to to ask somebody for something that you you suspect they might be able to do or give to not go to the source who will not give you that thing, which is an interpersonal pattern many of us struggle with. Like if you know your dad's never going to give you emotional support and validate your practice don't go asking him for mm. emotional <laughs> support and validate your practice if you know that you have a friend who has a lot of time scarcity and you want them to do something for you. So match the ask to a person who you think, who you suspect has the willingness and ability to do it. And even that person could say no, and that's okay too. But so you want to be thinking about like, who am I asking for what? Am I actually matching these things up correctly? Then making it clear. So if I just say, I need help, well, that doesn't, that doesn't get me anything. Somebody would say, are you choking? Do you need money? Like what's going on? What, what's the actual <laughs> help you need? I have right. to be more specific. Like I need help promoting my book. Okay. Will you person I'm asking, will you share about it in your social media? Like that's a very specific thing I'm asking for that then they get to say yes, no, or not now, or mm-hmm. I need more information. But so to have some specificity about what you're asking for. And and sometimes you might not know. and And the help you need is, I need help figuring out what I need. Would you talk to me about my book is coming out and I need help from my friends and family, but I don't know what to ask for. A person can actually provide that help, like brainstorming what to ask for of people. But so it's getting clear about what you need, having some specificity and asking people that you suspect can
0: actually give you what you want and need. Clean, achievable, quantifiable, and well matched to the person you're asking. That's so helpful when it gets all like, oh, feelings. Oh, like, (laughs) here are the four. (laughs) (laughs) Those things, just keep those in mind. We can do this. Um, What would you say is the absolute starting point? For asking based on your experience with artists from so many parts of the world. And you might have already answered this in terms of like, help me figure out what to ask for. <laughs> but is there something else that comes to mind?
1: Like, kind of a starter.
0: Just like the very. <laughs> for somebody
1: who's really like, like,
0: yes, I have to from, ask somebody. <laughs> yeah, like your client is like curled into a ball because she mm-hmm. has to ask this important industry professional. That's for a favor and never mind that the industry professional is her best friend. This is still like cataclysmic curled into a ball level, right? Anxiety. Yeah. For those people, the people that are like, I can't ask for anything ever, no matter what. Where do yeah. we
1: we break the we break asking down into the tiniest minuscule pieces? So for example, when somebody has to send an email asking for something and they are absolutely petrified, I will just ask them to write. The email they don't have to send it they can send it to me but Mm -hmm. to just actually practice i have written it and then we can see and now are you willing to send it but sort of whatever task is at hand whatever thing that you want to ask for that you feel absolutely unwilling backing it up to what is just the next very small step that what's the movement you could make and still feel safe that's movement but it feels safe
0: Mm, so so helpful What's the movement you can make and still feel safe? I love it. And is there anything that you've noticed about asking as it relates to pandemic? So asking is up, asking is down, asking is weird. (laughs) Yeah, well, I
1: think actually, you know, I I wonder if you've ever read Rebecca Solnit's writing about communities that erupt in and she has a wonderful book called paradise built in hell Mm -hmm. i'm pretty sure that's the precise name and Mm -hmm. it's about the communities that emerge in disasters and the past 13 months in many ways has been a disaster for many people Mm -hmm. um and so i think what happens out of that is people become surprised at themselves and their community in their willingness and ability to take care of each other the mutual aid that has happened over the past 13 months is astonishing People's um, commitment to anti-racist work and to working toward abolition has emerged during a pandemic and so many new people and communities um, sharing of resources, whether it is money or groceries or what's coming out of the garden or running errands for someone within a compromised immune system. I've seen so many examples of the public consciousness of understanding that Mutual community care is how we all live and how we can thrive. And so I actually think th- asking might be something that feels more culturally available for more people right now because it was purely out of necessity.
0: Mm-hmm. You have no choice.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes. At some level. You, we have to ask for help. When there was no toilet paper in the grocery store and you found that you didn't have any, you would have to ask someone for someone and someone would give it to you. And then you'd say, okay, well, what do I have that somebody else needs? And and that's how that's how that's how communities can really emerge in a new way during a disaster.
0: That's really really beautiful. And then I wanted to talk about asking, and there's just a paragraph in the book about it, so I wanted to talk more about. Um, there's the like, but what if they say yes? Oh, and you know, it's
1: this little what, quiet whisper. <laughs> <laughs> but what if you get what you're asking for, which is often the harder thing? I. I I've observed over the years that for for the artists I work with, it's one thing to get the dream. It's one thing to get the grant or the exhibition or to sell the TV show or to have the big production. Mm -hmm. It's even harder internally for them to enjoy it. That is a much harder ask. And I think this is akin to this particular piece of the asking chapter of what happens when I get for what I'm asking for, what happens if they say, yes, what if I get what I want and need, then mm-hmm. what, then it's a new level of risk and vulnerability. Then I have to do this thing, or then I have to get bigger and then I have to show up and then I have to sort of let myself grow and be seen. And that is can be very frightening. So sometimes people's avoidance of asking for things or allowing things in their life to get bigger is their fear of what if it actually happens? Not what if I'm rejected, but what if it actually happens? What if I sell the book and then I have to write it?
0: (laughs) Right. What if Netflix picks it up and then it's going to be on Netflix? Oh, Jesus. Yeah, right. Exactly. Fascinating. And so, um, If there's anything that people are listening to and they're sort of in the spot of like, I don't ask for anything ever. I don't know where to start. I hate asking. Also, I'm afraid of succeeding, but I'm afraid of (laughs) failing too. And it's month 13 of pandemic. Mm. Anything that addresses all of those, super easy question. (laughs) (laughs) I think a
1: nice, simple, gentle step is asking an artist in your life to just talk about your work together just to say, can we just talk as two artists, tell me what's going on in your studio or in your practice. And I'll answer questions about mine. To just ask someone to be with you in this identity, to spend time together as two artists specifically, mm-hmm. which helps turn up the volume on that part of you.
0: That's a, such a beautiful way to look at it. Um, and then, is that a place to talk about homework club, perhaps? Oh,
1: sure, I homework, my homework club is, Very much, and it's very much a natural offshoot of this book. So this homework club is a, it's a subscription club that artists pay $15 a month to become members. And every month they get homework on a particular theme. They get a handout at the beginning of the month with very specific actions to take. There is a monthly workshop on different topics. So in May and June, we're actually doing a two-part workshop on money. And personal finance and our emotional relationship to money, um, and then they are in account, matched into accountability pods. If they want, they don't have to be, but they're put into four artist pods to help give each other accountability and support and meeting goals. And there's a private, secret Instagram account for Homework Club members where mostly I ask them to get off of Instagram. That's the main function of that is asking people to. <laughs> just being like, okay, you're here. Will you delete this for the next 48 hours and go work on your practice? And people are like, maybe, okay. Um, and then, and some, and some other fun things, but it, it's, it's really, it's really fun. I love this club. I do this with my friend, Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs, who's a brilliant artist and composer. And it was actually her idea that we create something. And I was, I was scared. I was like, what, no one's going to let you do that. And she was like, oh yes, they will. <laughs> and so she is my, 100% partner in all things related to homework club but for it's for people who would like a little bit more structure and accountability
0: built in their creative practice that sounds like just about everyone i know as far as <laughs> as far as artists and homework and handouts and um yeah so please 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 check that out everyone um and then for some reason i i left this until the end we will see um aside from those sort of three big ones, so we moved through time, we moved through fear, we moved through asking, um, and then there's this like capitalism is sort of like the the last remaining, like that's a big one. Um, On page 35 you say quote, an artist's central question when it comes to employment is my art plus making a living equals What the fuck? (laughs) Mm -hmm. This is not a paradox, but rather an equation that you may continually rework and resolve throughout your life. This is okay. It doesn't mean you never figured it out. Capitalism isn't something to figure out. It is something to navigate and live within while chipping away at its harmful effects and structures and finding strategies for usurping its rules." End quote. Do you have any rules um, for artists to help them usurp the rules of capitalism? or more interesting question, do you have any rules for usurping the rules of capitalism in your own life? I
1: think valuing valuing time over money. And that sounds like a rich person's answer, but so let me explain. Mm -hmm. It's not like I take 40 hours off a week and then I work for one hour. That's not what I'm saying, (laughs) but rather shifting the meaning of each of these things. It's a lifelong relationship for me, an ongoing thing to the world of money. I love money. I want money. Money can do lots of good things in my life. And I love to give money away. I love to redistribute money. Money can do so much for so many people. And money can be really, really harmful. It's what we project onto it. And I want all of my clients to have all of the money. But first, I want us to have a different foundation of why we're alive and what we're doing so that we can have our relationship to money be specific and right-sized. And so that money doesn't become an indicator of how we feel about ourselves on the inside. Mm. Because the economic system we live in will tell us all the time that we're not doing enough and we're not good enough and we don't have enough. And so every day that I can get back to the emotional place of I have enough, I do enough, I am enough, then I'm usurping the cultural messaging of capitalism and my my money can kind of take back its rightful place in the world instead of it telling me who I am. So this is a lofty ask. And it's certainly, there's been times in my life when I was struggling too much to even be able to hear anything like that, mm-hmm. but money is deeply emotional. And I think there are two separate pools of work that we have to do when it comes to the world of money and finance. One is our, is working with our emotional, behavioral, and psychological relationship to money because it is so emotional. And the other is actually learning tactics of personal finance, actually learning things about money that maybe we never did in our adult lives and from our family of origin, actually learning about how to behave in a sane way with money so that we can reach our goals and have a financial life that we want. So those are two distinct things that have to happen at the same time. And I think that also usurps the belief that capitalism would insert into us about money telling us our worth in the world.
0: Yeah. I love, I have enough. I do enough. I am enough. And if you're like, yep, all three of those are super easy for me. That's remarkable.
1: Yeah. Call us, (laughs) tell us how,
0: right. (laughs) (laughs) It's a bit tricky in there. Um, Is there anything else that you would like to like say, interject, just like take the floor and then I will make another pitch for your book and we can call it a day. I just for
1: everybody listening you have been deeply impacted by other people's art and just take a moment to think about something that you read or watched or experienced or saw or felt that really gave you a moment of feeling connected that there was a person or people behind that and they had to have the willingness to make the thing and then let it be in the world and because of that, you had that experience. And you are going to do that for someone else when you make your work and let it be in the world. You're a part of this long continuum, this lineage. So please take up your place
0: in it. Mm. That's Beth Pickens, ladies and gentlemen. Um, the book is Make Your Art No Matter What Moving Beyond Creative Hurdles. It is available where the fuck ever books are sold. Please go buy a copy or 12 and join Homework Club. Is there, and then um, thank you so much for being here, Beth. That, this has been so fun and amazing. Oh, it's
1: so great to talk to you all the time. You're such a generous reader of, of books. And so I love to get to talk to you.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, you can find, again, bethpickens.com. Go and get the book. And then you can email me about your thoughts about the book because I will be so happy to discuss this with you. And Beth is probably a little busy right now. <laughs> <laughs>